This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 158 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Alan Moore and David Lloyd's 1982 comic, V for Vendetta. So we're back with another Alan Moore comic. Uh, This is a really political one, which we thought would be a a fun one to choose for this time uh, in America where we're leading up to our election. I don't know if you're listening to this at a later date or as it comes out. Uh, We are right around the election time here, and we don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, So some of this stuff could seem like maybe overblown. Some of it could seem like uh, maybe we're underselling just how dark things are about to get. Um, But we thought V for Vendetta would be a fun one to cover, considering all of that. Yeah, you can also consider this our Halloween coverage, because uh, it's coming out the week of Halloween. You know, I love Halloween, but, you know, given the current state of things, it's unfortunate that we don't get to have Halloween parties and see everybody all dressed up. And yeah, we have the the election looming. So very interesting time right now. Um, Yeah. Stressful. I'm stressed out. Uh, Hopefully it's all it all works out. Right. And so the other thing to say about this is like clearly V for Vendetta is incredibly British and it is a lot to do with like British politics and it was written in the 80s. So here we are covering it decades later. So a lot of this stuff like only loosely applies to what's going on today. Um, and plus, we're like taking it from British politics and, and thinking about it in American sensibilities. And we're going to get some stuff wrong. We're going to get some references wrong. It was written as a response to the, uh, the Margaret Thatcher administration and Thatcherism, which we touched on a little bit when we, in a bonus episode, covered a uh, Michael Moorcock essay in response to... Uh, J.R.L. Tolkien called Epic Pooh. Anyway, one of the things he touched on was that he felt like Tolkien uh, and Lord of the Rings sort of embodied Thatcherism, which I thought was interesting to see this term come up again here where Alan Moore is writing in response to Thatcherism. And it's this conservative movement of the time um, in British politics that apparently a lot of people are reacting to very strongly. I'm not very familiar with it since it was before I was born and in another country. It is very interesting that we can take the subject matter of this story that's very inherently British um, and reacting to things in Britain. Um, And obviously there are things being said about fascist regimes and of all. And and I think it's always going to be timely as long as there's fascism. Um, And so to to see some of the parallels is it kind of makes it a timeless story and and a cautionary tale for for any any age and just um, the idea of becoming complacent or or you know, a government sort of starting to have propaganda and, and influence uh, citizens into maybe even into um, sort of just living comfortable lives. And I, I don't know, I think it's really interesting to to see that like this sort of stuff kind of it transcends one country and one one certain political time and movement. You're right. Like through the lens of time, I feel like this story takes on a, almost a more of an allegory kind of tone to it like it's un it's almost 
detached from politics of any given time, and it's more about uh, what to do in a fascist police state and how you can combat that. And in that sense, I found it really, really interesting because it is um, a deeper exploration of anarchy and anarchism as like almost a political movement or political idea um, than anything I've really read before. Um, I have always been aware of like, anarchists who who even like self-identify that way and say like I am an anarchist, and like I I don't think I really understood what was meant by that. Um, and, right. and I'm not saying that this speaks for everyone, but in a way, this this sort of outlined the idea of anarchy and how it can combat a, a fascist regime in a way that that I found really interesting. It's not saying like I I 100% agreed with everything, you know. I think there is a lot of moral gray areas that go on in this book. You know, clearly there's a there's a one-sided side to the story and there's clearly people who are corrupt and people who are trying to do the right thing, but even the people who are doing the right thing tend to do things that are in gray areas like you said, like V isn't isn't a person you should look to as somebody who is the authority on justice or anything like that. But I think it's showing that like it takes someone like V sometimes to to sort of like spur a movement or to get people thinking in certain frames of reference and i think anarchy in itself is is a great idea but the problem becomes it as we see in the story it sort of crumbles down and then things have to be rebuilt it's not the end game it's sort of the the thing that you do to combat um censorship and to combat um being suppressed by a government something like that yeah oppression yeah i think you you touched on something that was important that is a piece of the anarchist ideal that i i didn't really fully understand and that was at least to here it's presented as a a two-part process like the first part is destroy and crumble the forces of oppression in the government and then the second part is rebuild something new and what's interesting is that rebuild something new is always sort of put off to a later date. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. it's like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll figure out what the new thing looks like eventually. And that's one of the things that always seems incomplete to me about the idea is like, yeah, sure. Break it all down, but like rebuild it with what? And, 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 um, what, what is going to work? What is not going to lend itself to these same sort of problems, but yet still provide all of the, um, in my opinion, necessary social contracts and um, safety nets that need to be in place, and structures that need to be in place for society to work in a way and to be successful. Um, and obviously, many people will disagree about what those things are. And yeah. I think it knows that. So instead of like dealing with it, it's like, yeah, we'll figure that out and we can come to an agreement. Um, but that is very important. And I think it's, it's something that I still see a lot of debate about, like what what do we need to actually do? And I don't want to bog down our podcast with our personal opinions on some of this stuff. Um, so I, I'll just say that I, I I have feelings about certain things, but um, I don't know that they're right. And I, I constantly am like taking in new information about like what is necessary, what, you know, specifically like policing, uh, ju criminal justice, stuff like that. Like what of that is something that should be present in a society versus what of that is inherently oppressive and right. i think there's a big spectrum there right of like what you think and what people believe is needed and what people believe is not needed and i i don't know where i fit i know that i have moved around some this year in particular um from like things that i used to believe um so 
I don't know that this book provides any answers. Right. That's not really what it's about. This book is more about like how to challenge oppressive police states that are clearly in the wrong and clearly doing bad shit. <laughs> right. And that's what the story. Yeah. The, the anything that can be created in in the eyes of the anarchists has to be better than what's actively going on. That's the point of anarchy. Is like this is a corru- this has to fall for something else to come along, and anything's going to be better than this. So so it's time for anarchy. Um, yeah. And just so we're clear, we're talking about a fictional book here. Um, not outlining like specific things that need to happen in our country. So uh, <laughs> if any of this sounds like we're, we're advocating certain things to happen, that's all just subtextual and you're bringing it to this. We're not saying that this needs to happen in our country. We're just talking about V for Vendetta. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I got something in my eye. <laughs> so... Uh... I don't know about you, but I've read this this uh, comic run before, and then I've also seen the movie. But I, you know, being a younger person and ha- not maybe living through some of the stuff we've now lived through, um, when I f- first read the story, I felt like it was sort of almost like edge lord, uh, like like wish fulfillment sort of anarchy that was going on in yeah. the story, and I felt like there was a lot to the story that was kind of just people wanting to be extreme for the sake of being extreme. Um, Man, that's but, so that's so important to point out, right? Like the current political environment you live in and how how comfortable you are in it will affect the way you view this story. Like right, right. now is the perfect time for me to read this, where I feel like America has gone to the precipice of full blown fascism and maybe over the edge. Um, I think time will tell in the next couple of weeks, you know, and and next few months where we're at with this. And in this moment, this book really really speaks to me. Right. Um, but I agree. Like back in the day when I watched the movie and stuff, it, it felt like kind of an extreme reaction. Um, now, obviously, I was in a certain bubble of privilege there right. um, that I recognize way more now than I ever did before. Um, but yeah, I mean, it can seem kind of edgelordy when you first check it out because you're like, really, we're going to blow up parliament, you know, like, OK. Um, but yeah, right now it's like, yeah, maybe something needs to be blown up. I don't know. Theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> in a fictional I, world <laughs> I, I think uh yeah i think i i just didn't have the the history to back up sort of and, and or maybe the empathy to have seen all of the atrocities that have gone on in different countries yeah. and things like that because of that bubble that we were in um and so yeah this story right now is is just very uh like i said it's it's timely and it's kind of transcending whether it's a british story or an american story well all that being said let me give a little bit of a summary of like what v for vendetta is um but then we decided we kind of discussed it and like there's so much that happens in this book because it is comprising many, many different issues of comics that came out as a serialized thing. Um, each one having their own little arcs and their own little and there's like a many, many characters. So rather than getting bogged down in summary um, and it's something that's a little bit unusual for us, we're really not going to do that. We're, we're going to still talk about it because um, it's divided into three books, book one, book two, book three, but we're not going to summarize them. Um, what we'll instead do is just talk about them. Um, and we recommend, I, I would recommend people go read this, especially right now. I think this is a really interesting piece. It, it, it varies greatly from the movie. We're going to get into the movie next week. Um, and, and we'll probably outline more of the differences, but this, this book, much like the Watchmen comic that we covered before, like it's really different than the, the movie adaptation that we get. Um, and, and so in that sense, like I do, I would say like, even if you've seen the movie, don't feel like you know what goes on in this comic because it's very different. Um, and it's worth checking out with the caveat of 
it is a it, it was written in the eighties, and in some ways that shows, um, and especially in the way it depicts women and and certain things, it's like I don't know. It, I'm not saying it's like perfectly woke or anything like that. It's really not. Um, yeah. But it's still worth checking out, in my opinion. I also uh, was reading that that more Alan Moore himself was uh, quoted as saying that he. There was a period where he could have gone back to sort of change some of the things that he wrote in these early stories because as time went he said he was a young author, a young a young writer when he mm-hmm. first started working on these stories. So, um, you know, by the end of the run he felt like he could have gone back to change some of it to sort of have more impact or to sort of, you know, I don't know if he would have made some of the characters more woke or anything like that. Like what what I don't you think specifically so. I know would I know what quote you're talking about and I think he's specifically talking about like the setup of the world where um, nuclear winter happens for much of the world, but like Britain can remain somewhat unaffected. And I think he's specifically talking about how like scientific later on, he scientifically read that like that couldn't happen that like, gotcha. you know what I mean? So I, I, I don't yeah. know that he, I think he's pretty comfortable with the way he writes, whether or not we are, I think right. and readers are, I think is going to vary um, from person to person. It, I mean, we've talked about Alan Moore in our Watchmen coverage a little bit. He's a controversial figure in, in some ways, but also like one of the biggest, most respected names in all of comics, right? Like he's, he's just huge. And like, I, after reading Watchmen and reading V for Vendetta, I, I can just tell that like anything I pick up from him is going to be entertaining, going to be interesting, going to be it's a mind that clearly has a lot to say and is going to say it in in an incredibly unique way. And like, that's what I want, you know, from fiction. So, uh, you know, I was excited to see him work with a different artist here. Um, and it, it makes for a different piece. And, and, um, I don't know. I, I guess just all that to say that, like, I, I would love to read some more Alan Moore. I know League of, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is one that apparently he wrote. Mm-hmm. That um, did you know that that's the adaptation that like broke him? Apparently, I heard like, that, he hated yeah. it so much that, that that he like swore off of all adaptations at that point. And that's why like he distanced himself from this adaptation and watched. He, he and, like, refused to others. have his his name attached to any of the like like his name wouldn't be on any of the marketing materials, any of the yeah. sort of like. When it's funny because like I saw that movie and I thought it was bad. Like, I did not like yeah. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Gentlemen the film. Um, but, man, I would be interested in reading an Alan Moore comic. Now that I know who Alan Moore is and, like, his style and stuff, I'm like, man, yeah. I, actually, that comic might be really good. He, I mean, yeah, he's super unique voice, hugely influential in the industry and in comics and, like, changed, I think, definitely changed the course of comics. And then uh, he has a huge, he has a super famous run of the Swamp Thing. He has yep. just all kinds of stuff uh, that... Yeah, all kinds of stuff that you, I mean, the killing joke is like mm-hmm. one that everyone loves to go to. Very hugely influential. So I don't, yeah, I would like to continue to read more Alan Moore as well. Yeah, absolutely. And other comics, actually. This this is just another reminder of like how fun it is to cover like a graphic novel. It's, it's I mean, it's a lot, like a lot goes down in here, but um, it was really fun and it's it's nice. Uh, we, well, we covered The Old Guard recently, um, which mm-hmm. was really cool, like a uh, data point for me too. seeing like a, a, a something that came out in the 80s versus something that's coming out today and like how stylistically different they were. I mean, hugely different. Um, and I just, again, like tip the iceberg stuff for me because I'm very new to comics and, and I could tell like this. This is just a massive uh, medium that has a lot going on. And you could devote your whole life to this and, you know, still be just like uh, learning more and like seeing different voices and different things being brought into it. And um, 
I'm excited to get in, but I do feel a little bit like I've fallen in the deep end here, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've read, <laughs> I've read tons of comics, and I still feel like it's a drop in the bucket. You know what I mean? I definitely yeah. don't consider myself an expert or anything close to it. And yeah, I, I mean, I love just like the, the medium, the fact that it's visual and sort of written word. Um, you can take your time. You can stop to 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 you know analyze the the art and see exactly the the motion of what's going on and like intentions of the author in you know intentions of the other author which would be david lloyd in this case so i I mean i just it's such a fascinating medium and i love i love exploring it well that visual element too it it really feels almost like a stepping stone or this this interesting sort of um link between you know pure prose and a a film you know what i mean like there's this interesting in between area that that is really cool yeah, and they're still using sort of cinematic language, too, in the way that they yeah. frame their shots. It's like a storyboard. It's like a storyboard for a film, but, yeah. um, you know, even more sort of honed, I would say. Yeah, really cool. Uh, okay, so V for Vendetta is a British graphic novel written by Alan Moore and illustrated by David Lloyd with additional art by Tony Weir. Initially published starting in 1982 in black and white as an ongoing serial in the short-lived UK anthology Warrior, it morphed into a 10-issue limited series published by DC Comics. Subsequent collected editions have typically been published under DC's more specialized imprint, Vertigo. The story depicts a dystopian and post-apocalyptic near-future history version of the United Kingdom in the 1990s, preceded by a nuclear war in the 1980s that devastated most of the rest of the world. The Nordic supremacist, neo-fascist, and outwardly Christo-fascist and homophobic fictional Norse Fire political party has exterminated its opponents in concentration camps and now rules the country as a police state. The comics follow the story's title character and protagonist, V, an anarchist revolutionary dressed in a Guy Fox mask, as he begins an elaborate and theatrical revolutionist campaign to kill his former captors, bring down the fascist state, and convince the people to abandon fascism in favor of anarchy, while inspiring a young woman, Evie Hammond, to be his protege. All right, uh, that's—I mean, that's that's a very bird's eye view of what goes on here. We got to talk about the Guy Fox connection here. Um, the 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 man—I don't know a lot about him. I, I know you told me you looked a little bit up, but he was a, a revolutionary who tried to burn down Parliament. Um, I, yeah. I guess he was unsuccessful. So yeah, I, I think what V is doing in the story is sort of reclaiming Guy Fox and the Guy yeah. Fox max mass because it, it, Guy Fox is sort of celebrated by um, Protestants as as a failure like the idea that he like attempted to do this stuff but was arrested and executed but i'm going to read a little bit here guy fox was a catholic extremist in the early 1600s who conspired with others to assassinate king james the first and other government leaders on the first day of parliament after his plan was thwarted protestants celebrated his arrest and execution later guy fox day on november 5th became part of the british thanksgiving V for Vendetta reinvents Guy Fox and presents him as a rogue hero who is a champion for human rights rather than the traitor he is remembered in history for being. The mask symbolizes V's belief that doing the right thing is not the same as following rules. Yeah, I mean, and what a massive legacy this this has now. I, I, and much of it popularized by this comic. This mask, you know, you see it today. You see people wearing it. You have an anonymous, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on the internet wears it. You have... It shows up in protests around the world. It's it's been a piece of political movements, and a lot of it, I think, does tie into this idea of anarchy as a response to fascism. Yeah, um, I do also want to say like how interesting it is to see anarchy 
when it's being led by someone and how the pitfalls of what can what can happen with that because it's still one person sort of influencing what he thinks is correct which kind of reminds me of Rorschach um the idea that that like ultimate justice for Rorschach means doing anything that's necessary making sure like justice is always served and V here is saying like anarchy like destroy everything but for because he knows what's best but who's to say he does you know that's sort of the well and he i don't think he does know what's best and and so i saw this quote here that i thought was really telling for like the way alan moore and david lloyd perceive v um and and honestly i could take this and apply it to Watchmen as well so alan moore said quote i didn't want to tell people what to think i just wanted to tell people to think I think that comes across here, right? Like it doesn't present a lot of answers as much as it is. It just is about tearing down and and showing hypocrisy and and, um, you know, racism and 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 uh, oppression that happens against, you know, homosexual people and just anybody who's perceived as an other. Um, And it seems like Alan Moore is trying to say, like, wake up and see this, see what is going on. And think about how we should combat it um, without providing the answers, but saying, like, think about it. And the idea that, like, people just need it in their minds to know that, like, whether or not you go along with it, just at least be aware of it. You know what I mean? Because, like, you we make decisions every day that give up our privacy, that give up our mm. how active we're being in a political sense, how how much we're, our voices are being heard, that sort of thing. But know that you're making a decision more than more than every day. Make sure that you're pushing against, you know what I mean, in every possible way. Yeah. And man, that, that touches on something that was I thought was incredibly prescient was the was the surveillance. The idea of this yeah. constant surveillance by the government um, in the 80s, like early 80s, you know, and like how much of a how true that is today, you know, and I mean, I, I know they weren't alone in, in predicting this sort of stuff, but. I don't know. I thought it was really fascinating just to see it and how real. I mean, obviously, it's like they're putting in, you know, cassette tapes and stuff like that. It's got funny ways that it's very 80s. But, man, it, it's still it's still the ideas are there for, like, things that right. are going on right now. And, I mean, something something that seems innocent, like social media, like you're posting pictures of your dog or going to do this. But, but the privacy and the access that you're giving to anybody who wants it, which includes the government, um, and the way that, like, it can seem like a fun thing, like like TV, watching TV in this story is sort mm-hmm. of like the you're giving up, you're not paying attention to every, anything, yeah. you're just watching whatever they tell you to. And this is all obviously like hugely propaganda related right. as well. Like they're they're putting it's all state state provided entertainment. Um and the way that like shutting your brain off and just watching that isn't isn't thinking and challenging. But it's you know, it's sneaky. You know, fascism is sneaky and I think it's there it's there before you know it. The propaganda stuff, like I mean thinking about like Fox News and stuff, like it's it's wild to think it's definitely trying to point out how the news is a trusted source, right? And so many people turn it on and think that it is unbiased and think that they're being told the truth. And then behind the scenes, we see that it is literally the mouthpiece of the government. It is it is a propaganda outfit through and through. Mm-hmm. And we see those uh, those agencies and those or uh, you know organizations existing today, um, not just in America but all over the world, and. Um, you know, can be the mouthpiece of fascism. And it is like an incredibly important piece of this, uh, 
this structure working. And and so in in the in this book, there's like uh, it's kind of described as like a body, and every position ha- is linked to like a part of the body. So you have the head, you have the mouth, you have the eyes, you have the ears. Um, and it's making up the body of this fascist state. And I thought like the metaphor was a little bit on the nose, but I do. Li- I ended up really liking it as a concept because it, it really shows you how they're all important parts of making this thing go. And each piece, um, each piece is very important and each piece has to be challenged to dismantle it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree. Like the, at first I was like, Ooh, the ear, like that's kind of the, the things that I think of when I think of the nose and the ear, yeah. are, uh, it felt kind of cheesy a little bit, but like you said, yeah. as, as it went on, I, I bought in and I was like, it's just, I mean, it's the eighties and I think it makes sense for the time. And, and, and yeah, I like the way that they tackle each version and, and allow the reader to think about like things going on in their life. Like what are the, what are the, what are the ways that the government or anyone is trying to uh, surveil me or, or control me it's, as simplified as that is, it's effective. Okay. If you're ready, man, let's talk about book one. To start, Evie uh, is an interesting character, right? Like the her background, the way that she's setting up the world for us the, as the readers to like her her background informs the, the the larger world that's been going on, and then the introduction of V is like sort of this vigilante Batman esque person yep. who has a secret lair that he takes her back to and all this stuff. Um, there's a lot of things that I'll probably point out that are Batman ish, um, but it's almost like Batman attacking you know, taking down fascism or something like that. And, and it's not one for one, obviously, but there are this sort of cloaked figure in the night. You yeah. Know? Some similarities are there. Yeah. So Evie is interesting. I can see why they changed this character significantly for the film. Um, I think the idea was she was going to be this kind of blank slate character who V can mold. Um, but because of that, I don't know. She she feels underserviced as a character and cliche. Um, she is constantly being sexualized um, from the first moment we, we meet her. There's an attempted rape um, and, you know, a lot of troubling stuff surrounding that <laughs> um, and, and how she's kind of dealt with throughout. She's 16, which especially as an American that that's really weird to read about the 16 year old and in, in, in the sexualized way. Well, I mean, even just, it's tragic to think of a 16 year old who's having to turn to basically prostitution just to because, because of like the, the, we come to find out that like the, there's not resources from the government in any way for people. Like right. That's the part of the, the division right. between. Well, and her parents were, and lower class. you know, her, her father was, you know, disappeared and for being a socialist and all this stuff. So it's like, She's been she she's been struggling under the you know the heel of the of the state, which I think is very important. But yeah, so she gets brought in by V, and um you know he takes uh, interest in and in sort of teaching her the ways uh, and and really th- over time molding her. We we meet a lot of these government officials, um uh, of which there are many. Um we have like Derek Almond who is the finger. We have the head who is Adam Susan. Um, who is he likes is in love with fate who's the su- supercomputer system i think that's also saying a lot about um because this person loves fascism but fully believes in fascism and this idea yeah. of like the analytical nature of of the computer always providing the answers and everything always being cut and dry something about that is being i think there's a commentary being made there like like um you know yeah. i think i think a computer typically people think a computer as being like void of a computer that thinks on its own and has ideas and that kind of thing would be void of art artists or void of art in general. And I wonder like what, 
I don't know what's being said there. And, you know, obviously that's not necessarily the case with computers now and everything. Just the, I think the first idea of a computer is that it's sort of the anti-art. I see. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I, you know, I, what I, I liked how a lot of these characters are shown to be deeply sort of flawed, you know, mentally unstable people. And, you know, this guy, this leader is, is disturbed, right? Like his worldview is messed up and he's in charge of everything. You know what I mean? And like Mm -hmm. as living in a time where our leader is severely mentally disturbed, it seems to me, um, you know, I identified with that, even if it may be in slightly different ways, uh, you know, it's still like the idea of someone who can be so deranged yet still hold so much power. Um, yeah, that really spoke to me. And you know, what's funny is I, I was thinking about this, obviously, because I have to relate it to what we're going through. And I felt like there was something there was like a pity that I had for this character uh, when it was like when he like spiraled and, and eventually like you know, I was in love with the computer and just like, yeah. the, the, like there is no, but I like, I don't feel any pity for our, for our current, you know <laughs> what I mean? There hasn't been, there hasn't been the humanity that I think these characters, some of these characters have in, yeah. in our leadership. So it's like, I don't know, man. Well, it's, you know what there's, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I want to talk about it while we thought, while we're, while we're on uh, Susan here, uh, Adam Susan, there was a part where he was driving or he was in the car and he, and he, re- and he thinks about how like, I'm the only one who is real. And he right. starts like, looking out at everybody and how they're like, they're all just like there to, to feed into his own ego and his own mind. And uh, that one, I, I felt like, ooh, that might really be speaking to something there. Yeah. <laughs> this this sort of solipsism uh, in government and leadership and having it all be about you. Um, that sounds familiar. Anyway, um, we also meet Finch, who is the detective, which I, I actually really, I want to talk a lot about this because I thought it was really interesting to have this, like he's maybe other than Evie and V, like the next character who gets the most attention is arguably Finch. And he's a cop. He is the part of the nose. And I thought it was interesting to position a detective as sort of a main, main cast character here who, who is, he's, he's somewhat sympathetic throughout um, in a book about fascism and about a police state. Right. Um, I think it's effective because like, I, I, I think most people recognize that there are, good people in policing um but how the the system itself can be oppressive and he in the book definitely is so even though finch is seems to be a fairly good person he's caught up in this right and his story is one of like what to do what is a good person to do when you're when you sort of realize that you're a piece of this monstrous uh system Right. And, and I like that you said that because his his character and he goes on to put himself in the shoes of the of the people who who are actively against him in a very real way. You know what I mean? To and try to to empathize and go through what they're going through, um, which I think is, you know, which makes him a character that is willing to question. You know, that's what that's yeah. what V is ultimately looking for is people who are willing to raise questions and and challenge, you know, challenge status quo and things like that. And think this about what you're doing. Think about what you're pro- what you're like promoting through right. your work. Yeah. And this character maybe is forced into it at one point, but eventually finds a way. And I'm not saying this character is really all that sympathetic. I think he's you know a product of a system, and ultimately kind of has um, like a reevaluation of his of his own like role in it. But uh, you know, 
I, we'll get to it when he when he takes the LSD yeah. specifically. So so let's talk about more about what happens in book one. In, in book one, we also have this priest, Bishop Anthony Lilliman, who's a pedophile, and um, Evie sort of infiltrates uh, his bedroom, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, pretending to be a you know a child prostitute. And so I mean, this book goes places. Um, <laughs> and um, th- something that I I just watched Borat too recently, and I'm, I know it's been in the news like oh, crazy. Oh wow, yeah, but right. this like totally reminded me of the Giuliani situation where like he, you know, cow. yeah, I didn't even think about. It. I haven't seen it, but I didn't think I didn't, that, that's amazing. That's true. Um, so anyway, and then and then the, having feeding him a poisoned communion wafer that <laughs> was like it's it, so so we're getting into a little bit of of a V as a, as a character, but, um, he poisons this guy with, with a communion wafer. And then we, uh, I'll just finish out what else happens in the end book one. He also then kills, uh, this Dr. Surridge who, um, they all worked at this Lark Hill, uh, basically concentration camp where people were being executed. And we find out that V was prisoner five, um, who was experimented on. And it seems like the medical experiments, um, made him sort of schizophrenic and, and, and definitely messed with his mind and sort of created or, 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 I don't know, amplified some of the like really elaborate thinking and um, planning and stuff that we see out of V that is almost supernatural in a way. Um, right. Some of that was amplified by these medical experiments that went down at this facility um, and then he gets his revenge on her, although he's much gentler to her, letting her basically he had already poisoned her when she wakes up and then he lets her know, like, you know, it's not going to be without pain and all this stuff. So um, very gently sort of sort of takes her out because apparently he has some feelings of of I don't know, like maybe she she went on to have a good life. It seems like maybe after the fact. And so he's given her some benefit of the doubt for that. And the way that she reacted when she saw him was like, I always knew you would come. I knew you were on your way. And yeah. yeah, maybe there was some sort of attempt to try to do better. God, there's so much to talk about here. But like, so so what does that say? It's like, you know, if, if, you've, if you've done these horrific things, but then you live the rest of your life trying to make it better, it's like you're not forgiven, but maybe like the punishment isn't as harsh, even though the result is the same. <laughs> I don't know. It's like yeah. it's like you get something, but you don't get forgiven. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. Um, but let's talk about V as a character, because... After seeing the movie, that and that was, by the way, that was my only experience with this beforehand, is I had seen the movie, I'd never read the comic. Um, and I remember thinking, like, eh, that character, he's, like, so over the top. He, he's he got such intricate plans for everything. It, it's it's unbelievable, right? Like, that he can he could be, like, at the same time he's planning this elaborate, you know, scheme, he's also, like, building big domino sets, and he's, like, creating an entire, you know, uh, stage of, of believe, like, photorealistic, like, someone would be fooled, recreation of something, you know, like, he does all this stuff, and it's so over the top, um, but this, I felt like the comic does a slightly better job of explaining how that could happen, and it's still, you have to suspend your disbelief to believe it, um, but, like, I was able to do it better in the comic, I think, than the movie, at least from my memory of it if i remember correctly i think that the book takes place over like a much larger amount of time like several much years longer amount of time like, yeah and and i think like that given that he was killing a lot of these people behind the scenes before they were even realizing it like they were like either disappearing or seemingly dying normal deaths and things like that he'd been taking out the people that had affected him at lark hill and taking out like people in the in this like hierarchy of of the government that that like you know are propagating some of this stuff and then we get you know his the the idea that like he's been affected by this treatment and all this other shit that he's been put through um 
the way he speaks yeah i agree like it's it's very over the top but it does serve the character well like it makes him an interesting character and it it's makes really theatrical. him theatrical i love the like yeah the, the the studying and the knowledge that would have gone on into a character like that and the understanding of different philosophies and different forms of art and all that kind of stuff you know that stuff always really speaks to me the people who are like the keepers of knowledge or, or like protectors of knowledge in an apocalyptic scenario like this um you know it, it's to me it's the important stuff to yeah. to sort of like show that culture was here and show that like art existed and that kind of thing so um very interesting like well-read character clearly like very oh, intelligent yeah. and then made even more eccentric by the the treatments and the way that he speaks and the way that he thinks apparently and, and like some of this is like it has to be this way for the character to work in the way that it does like so that he can he can talk about like famous uh writers who have written about anarchy and written about fascism and he can sort of be a mouthpiece for that and and embody that in a way. It's like highly symbolic. And um, that is what we'll get to that as that's dealt with directly in the text. So like the character kind of has to be this way to be as effective as he is in in this role in this story. Um, yeah. I, I also I love how like everything has like symbolic undertones and you, you buy into the idea that this is all planned. Right. Like the way that he kills this pedophile priest um it's really really brilliant and then he, he feeds him this poison communion wafer and then he even says like i can't remember exactly but it's something about like you know you know this should be transformed into the body of christ you know and uh not kill you uh, but then it does so it's like kind of proving that this guy is false and that his maybe his faith is false but at the very least that like he is false and that he right. doesn't actually have the power or the godliness that he pretends to have um, yeah. directly proving that through the poisoning. I mean, yeah, I like that. I like the sort of takedown of, of that, especially the pedophile priest. You know, it's not just religion, yeah. but it is religion because religion is a system that, that protects people like this uh, historically. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about this, too, because I think originally I would have I would have balked at the idea that like everybody is so terrible in this government. Um, but again, um, <laughs> that has proven to be true, right? Like this sort of, this sort of power and corrupt and racist, homophobic, xenophobic, uh, administrations, um, apparently they seem to attract the worst people. And so the idea that like every person that we uncover is like worse than the next in many ways, like I buy it, you know, like the, the skeletons that uh, must be in some closets, um, I think we're just starting to to hear about some of the shit that's going to be coming out. Um, hopefully, you know, um, yeah. if things go the way we want, um, because this, these are some evil people. And, um, you know, people make this point all the time on Twitter. You know, writers I see making this point all the time of like, I would be laughed out of, you know, laughed out of the office if I if I showed this to my editor and I was like this and this and this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen as a metaphor. And it's like. That's way too on the nose, you know, but then in American yeah. politics, like it's happening all the time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. All right. So let's talk about book two. This is called the This Vicious Cabaret. So this chapter starts with like a prelude and you and you sent me a, uh, a video on YouTube where someone oh, actually because yeah. it's a music. There's a musical like written. I don't know. I don't know music very well, clearly. But basically yeah. they had written out the, the notes and the music on the paper next to the lyrics that V is singing. Sheet music. Uh, yeah sheet music in the video someone was performing the music and sort of reading off and it was a it was really interesting experience really because cool. i'll put the, i'll put that in the show notes because it's really cool I, I recommend you you watch this especially if you've ever read the comic and you haven't 
checked out something like this before it's cool yeah it's cool because like that that had to be written by alan moore obviously collaborating with somebody or i mean i guess maybe not obviously maybe he does i don't know maybe he's a musician who knows how to do that himself but to, to see that on the page to be brought to life in this youtube video was really cool um and it's sort of setting up all the stuff that's going to go on in this chapter where v basically takes out multiple people in the mouth uh to sort of cripple the cripple the propaganda machine of the mouth and then the yeah. finger he's taking out some of like the the people who who go out and like you know uh, threaten people that kind of yeah. thing just the hands of the state the people who 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 touch literally touch the people you know it's it, yeah the, the metaphor is on the nose but it works right so yeah he's taking he's taking out all these people um we're starting to get, see people vying for positions within the government and like their own self-interests are be becoming a part of this political machine um and kind of undermining it in ways and also creating weaknesses um which v is able to to sort of start toppling uh before i, I just looked at my notes and saw something from book one that i wanted to mention on page two the phrase make Britain great again appears. I saw that, yeah. I was like, <laughs> Which, holy shit. Do they take that believe. from this book? I don't know. But anyway, I just I had to say that. I couldn't believe it, yeah. <laughs> oh, the other thing I want to talk about before we get really more into the plot here. Um, overall, the way this book looks, the way it reads, um, I struggled a little bit to track characters um now i think if i was reading this issue by issue as it comes out let's really talk about with watchmen versus like right. all in one sitting like one go like i basically did i mean it was multiple sittings but you know what i mean it was kind of difficult to visually differentiate between a lot of these like white dudes in government especially um even some of the women um, started. To, it was sometimes difficult to, to like visually tell who were who is being dealt with. Um, there was also some stylistic choices, which I read a little bit about um, in in uh, the the essay that follows um, in the book I have um, from Alan Moore, where he talks about how they made the decision to not have any sound effects, um, mm -hmm. and then also not have thought bubbles. Um, and because of that, there were times where. It, I, it was hard. I, I don't know the, the thought bubbles more than anything else where it was hard to like identify who the like primary character was and what we're seeing um, right. because we, we, we do sometimes get like exposition or what seems to be thoughts. I'm not really sure. Um, so I just wanted to talk about it stylistically that, you know, sometimes you get like a uh, jagged bub like things around stuff, which was supposed to be like loud sounds or like like the radio might be saying something so that would be jagged and then there was like boxy stuff and then there was speech bubbles and like sometimes i would have trouble immediately situating myself to like what i was reading and what it was um and i don't know if that's just like maybe i needed to be like i need to be like a higher level comics reader than i am currently um or if that's like they were really trying something experimental here and everybody might have had to kind of figure out what's going on i don't know like what was your take on that i, I think a little bit of both i think like you, there's a certain confidence that they that they're definitely displaying to because it is if you confuse people they're going to not want to keep reading you know and and like so to be like i think we can visually tell this story um to you know have somebody in the foreground or have somebody like clearly actionably doing something and like um you know, typically they try to put the put the text boxes like closer to the to the characters. So like there's a little bit of that. But also at the same time, I think it is I, I don't think you're supposed to blaze through this story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, especially as it's coming out, like you said, if this is if this comes out and it's like 10 pages, 
and you you know you went to this the comic shop and bought it for 50 cents or a dollar or whatever back in the 80s you're not going to blow through it and then never look at it again you're going to take your time and really marinate in it and i think like that has something to do with it as well and and i think you i I just think that that's part of what this story is it's supposed to be a slow burn yeah and then you you mentioned before we got on that maybe uh because i was i said like i was having trouble telling some of these characters apart and then you had mentioned maybe that was intentional right yeah, as far as the characters being similar, I I agree. I was like, who is this guy? And as we as we get further along, we haven't seen certain characters for a while, so I forget yeah. what they looked like back then. And then it's also like the artist isn't one hundred percent always going to draw the character exactly the same way, depending on the angle that they're standing or what they're doing. So yeah, yeah for me, every uh, like there were times where I was like, who is this again? And and what like, but yeah, I I, I mean that was just me spitballing when I was talking to you about it is maybe, you know, maybe intentional, maybe this robotic system was meant to have a ton of white people who were just in power. Yeah. White, white men. Also, I think it's interesting to note that this was coming out in black and white originally, um, which would have made it even more difficult because a little bit, sometimes a little bit of the color helps helped me. Um, And I think it's interesting to note that this was one of the least popular uh, pieces in in those warrior comics is what i was reading like and um yeah like people didn't like this (laughs) wow um and uh you know the fact that it got picked back up and and completed um after the warrior comics i guess went under or or that that line got canceled uh, or whatever um is interesting right and then of course it's gone on to be one of the most you know, I saw that it was listed in like top 100 most influential comics of all time, stuff like that. You know, it's like this iconic yeah. work. Yet at the time, I think people struggled with it. And I wonder if we're touching on some of it. Like maybe it was just a little bit off-putting, a little bit difficult to follow. Um, you know, and it's appearing aside uh, other comics, which are probably much easier to grok, right? Whereas this is incredibly sort of um, complex and um, layered. And, and like I said, it, it lends to it lends itself to like really studying it. And, um, not everybody wants to do that when they pick up a comic, I assume. Um, and, and especially depending on the readership of that particular, um, anthology series, right? Like what is their readership like? Are they looking for something like this? Yeah. The fact that it was canceled and picked back up without a huge sort of following, I just always assumed it had this massive following. Like you said, it, it, you know, other stuff around it that was in that anthology was probably easier to read. But also in terms of like pushing what 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 comics were doing at the time, like I, yeah. I have a feeling that this was very much an outlier. Well, this was early on in Alan Moore's career, too. So he wasn't known yeah. for this sort of stuff. He was he was fairly new, I think. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, he builds up a reputation over time, builds up a, a readership. Um, anyway, I, I just wanted to be able to touch a little bit on some of the stylistic stuff. Um and then and then uh, now let's let's get back into the plot. One of the things that I always remember and I think makes this story, you know, one of these crazy comics that is in the top 100 of all time. Uh, this this all the stuff that goes on with Evie here and the way and I, this is the stuff that's always stuck in my mind because it's so, so brutal. So and like Evie is so up to this point, this character that is like really two dimensional and uh, to like put her through all of this. So you're specifically talking about when he he ta- he captures her and and fools her into thinking she's being tortured and, and imprisoned, right? Yeah, right. And, and just like how tortured, like tortured as he was, and put through some of the same things that he was put through, like mentally tortured, physically tortured, uh, yeah. and like to see her come out on the other side. And and, and honestly, the biggest holy shit moment is the the re- the reveal of the letter that uh, she had been reading to sort of keep herself comforted and everything like that yeah and then for her to come out 
right for her to come out the other side of all of this stuff that she went through and say like v i can't believe you came up with this this letter it's so touching it feels so real and he's like no that that's how i made it through my prison and all the stuff that i yeah. had to go through and uh that that's the that's my favorite moment and like, like my favorite sort of section of this whole story as problematic as it does feel for him to be like torturing this 16 year old woman and and you know all of that like that's that's obviously tough to read yeah uh, ethically this this part is incredibly difficult <laughs> um you know he is abusing uh it, this is against her will you know what i mean this is not consent um and uh he is you know torturing somebody to teach him a lesson and um the the thing that i struggled with is sort of more the aftermath of this scene because like i believe that this character would do that he is so like beyond like human <laughs> concerns like this like it's all about building you into a better person and the person that i think you should be and who is more able to sort of follow in my footsteps which we know is like the eventual goal i guess um but i felt like evie forgave him maybe a little bit too fast um because i i just i think the rage would you and, and in fact i kind of wanted it to be unforgivable and then maybe you just kind of find like a middle ground. Um, whereas instead we get her, she basically completely forgives him right away. Um, and, and that was a part where like the character note just didn't quite strike right for me, at least in my sensibilities. I felt like I don't know that you could ever forgive somebody for doing this to you, regardless of their intention. Right. Um, that's just, I don't know, maybe this is how I feel. I mean, and it's not even like V did it for her own it's not for her. He doesn't do it for her. He kind of does it for her to realize these things, but he does it for him because of his ideals. Ultimately, it's yeah. not for her. He's forcing his viewpoints in some ways onto her, right? Like, yeah, yeah. He like he would argue that she's she is like arriving at the same conclusions, but like he's creating the circumstance for her to do that. Right. Like, I don't know, man. It's it's a weird part, but like you're, you're right. It's one of the things that you'll remember about this story. It is incredibly yeah. memorable. Another layer to it is that he's, this is all done to him. You know, it's not like he doesn't understand yeah, what she's going exactly. through. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I just, it's always stuck with me with this story and like how he is becoming the same people, you know, by in doing this to her, he's becoming the same people that he's fighting against. He's subjugating somebody. He's, he's forcing them to do something against their will in, in this extreme of a circumstance too, in like a concentration camp environment. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit too about the the sort of multi year plan going on here. When we first meet V, he's blowing up Parliament, um, which I believe happens much later in the movie. So um, he, this is the, the the order of events is very different. Um, and then um, he, in in this book too, in particular, he is attacking this propaganda outfit, which we see is like has this like racist programming. Uh, I thought it was really interesting actually. It was like racist slash like empty empty sexuality. It was like kind of going between the two. Um, mm -hmm. and it was intercutting it, it, a lot of the structure of this is fascinating. The way it intercuts, um, I, I thought was great. And then like, um, I don't know, like what it's trying to say about like uh, the role entertainment plays in propagating this stuff. Right. And like how, if you don't expect more from your, from your artists and from your entertainment, um, you're going to let yourself sort of be brainwashed into believing this shit. Um, and, I don't know. I, I think that's a really interesting point to make and something that I, I do hear a lot of people still talking about today. And, you know, here's Alan Moore in the 80s talking about it. Um, you know, interesting stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting to think of like what TV represented to this generation of people. You know, TV isn't the same today. You know, it was when we were kids. Sure. You know, TV, but but TV was like there was like you know this idea that everybody would be watching the same channels it was still like appointment television stuff right like everybody's watching the stuff at the same time it's not streaming like it is today so like yeah getting like it's much more like a live event like watching sports but like everything was like that you 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 all everybody tuned in at the same time to watch yeah right so you know you you walk to the water cooler in the in the next morning at work and you're like did you catch the news last night everybody did um so it is even more so like homogenizing everyone to the same things um, whereas today, I think there is more diversity, but I still think that the, this, the, the sort of idea holds true of, um, you know, getting sucked into sort of mindless entertainment and what that can what that can do for a fascist regime if that's all you care about. Well, yeah, the, I mean, I think the, the sort of empty, empty sexual stuff, I think, was, was saying that. But then in particular, the, the sort of racist, it was like a Western with this guy who was like oh, yeah. fighting a bunch of like very problematic racist tropey characters and he was this white blonde you know savior and like you know i i think it's like pointing out like hey maybe we should pay attention to what message is being what is being told to us in some of this stuff right. um well I, in the in that same show black people were like enemies and savages and like all this oh, yeah. other you know like very clearly so i think they were like raping women and stuff like it was all the like worst tropes yeah and like you know that's saying something that that is what this propaganda outfit is putting out it's like one of the most popular shows on television you know um anyway so i wanted to talk a little bit about ali here uh, ali harper um his so he's this like i don't know he's like a, he, he he leads a bunch of thugs and he's a thug himself and he he ends up killing this uh gordon character who evie shacks up with for a little while um and we get the introduction of this guy and i hated reading him it was the most brutal part of the entire book, and he talks a lot. I was amazed at how much this guy talks. It was written in a way that was trying to be phonetic, I guess, and spelling out what I guess is like a Scottish accent, and it was awful. It was so hard to read, and it was like, it just shows me how much I hate this kind of writing. Um, this is something that, like, I really don't think people should do like I think we've all I don't know I hope that a lot of people recognize now that like less is more with this stuff like you can do a little bit here or there to sort of like uh, hint at a Scottish accent Um, and and you know there's choices to be made about like how deep you want to go but this was so over the top it was every single word was spelled differently to try and phonetically evoke the way Scottish people pronounce things and it becomes almost unreadable. Um, so, yeah, this was a tough part for me. And I, just, I, I have also, to point it out. I, I really didn't like it. As a, I feel like uh, Alan Moore being British, he's more familiar with the accent. He's and maybe even reading it at the time more familiar with it. But yeah, I, as an American reader. But, but now, like we as Americans could write a British accent this way. If we wanted to, if we wanted to really highlight how differently they pronounce everything, it's all about your perspective, right? And it's, you're very locked into your view of like English and what sounds right to your ear. Um, but instead, we don't read. I don't read the rest of this comic with a British accent. I just read it how I read it. So like that's the lesson I think to learn here is that like that's just your perspective on how someone else sounds. Um, and, and it's always going to change versus like what your, your, your own accent is and where, how you pronounce things. And I don't know, right. English is like, is a weird language because so many people don't speak it in so many different, um, so many different sort of dialects and, and accents and stuff. So like, I understand you wanting to evoke certain things, 
But again, less is more. You can do so much with just a, like one little tweak here or there, a different word choice here or there, and you can you can bring up that accent in people's minds and they can hear the character without making it so difficult to read. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Like at the end of the day, like it wasn't so, it didn't really add anything for me, so to lose it would have just made it easier to read. So Well, I, and it also like I feel like it's almost dehumanizing in a way. It's like it's almost like making fun of them. It's like look at how ridiculous they are and the way they pronounce this. Like uh, to me that's where it starts to go. It starts to go into almost yeah. like an offensive territory. I can see which, that, yeah. Which I don't like, yeah. Like if you're yeah. if you're Scottish and you're reading this, you're like, what? I don't I don't what? <laughs> you know, I don't say this, you know, because do you you speak normally? So like I don't know, it's bizarre. It's a bizarre choice. Didn't like it. And anyway, let's not let's not linger on it too long. But uh, I had I had to mention it. Okay, so uh, just a couple more things here. Um, I I also really like the look of V in the comic. He's got this like really tall cap. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, I don't know, like, I feel like he was more imposing here than, than I remember him being in the film. I know we're not getting to the film yet, but, um, this version of V was really interesting. And then I also really liked, he was like playful and he did this whole vaudeville thing where he like completely changed his look and even changed his mask. And he, and, um, I don't know, he just was, he, he had a lot of character here that I, that I really appreciated. Yeah. Uh, to speak to like the, the movement of V in the, in the, some of the panels and stuff, like that's another sort of that something that felt kind of Batman-ish to me is like, you know, when he's t- almost turning into a specter as he runs away and it, like the way the cloak is billowing and you can't really see his feet um, and he's almost becoming something that he's like otherworldly. Um, uh, and, the, you know, the way that people were talking about how he could he was so fast and he could he could, you know, he would he would attack people so quickly faster than a gun could get to him in some cases. I Yeah, I really liked a lot of the motion of this and, and like the look. I, you know, I think as eccentric as he is in the movie, I think, you, like you said, there's m- even more depth to it here. Like, there's more range to... Like, I, I think he's less sort of human in a way, but but more eccentric, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's more performative, like you've said, theatrical. And then uh, one of my favorite moments is when he when he references Sympathy of the, for the Devil, when uh, he... Well, that's with the priest. He, like, sort of is like, please allow me to introduce myself... Uh, and then like he, the next the next panel, he has horns and it was just like a quick <laughs> moment of like him and he has horns on his mask. And it's just like, that's awesome. That's a cool reference to make. Uh, a lot of that stuff was really fun. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to watch the movie just to like try and uh, it's been a while since I've seen it and I want to refresh my memory. Um, and, and then making a comparison, I think, between V in the film and V in the, in the comics is, is going to be one of our primary comparison points because they, I do feel like they're very different. Uh, and I'm struggling to put all, my finger on all the ways until I watch the movie, you know? Uh, But let's move into book three. So book three is called The Land of Do As You Please. So yeah, here at the beginning, V continues blowing up buildings, this time taking out the ears, leader. So he's effectively taking out the eye, the ear, and the mouth. And um, because this is basically all the propaganda machines are down, people want to find something to do and realize that like their government isn't necessarily what what it was before. And people start to get out in the streets and... and, uh, create riots and and running all over the place and and looting and and that sort of thing it's not peaceful but it is it is uh you know the public taking action yeah it's interesting how it's 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 sort of positioned as like a necessary step into the creation of this anarchist society that that v seems to want um this land of do as you please um which i don't know is a political concept of everybody going around and doing whatever they want does not seem 
sustainable to me. Um, yeah. But I understand it's more of an ideal. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't think it's supposed to be like exactly everybody do as they want. It's very it's very individualistic to me. It's the thing that yeah. always bothered me with that. It, it feels very libertarian in a sense. It's like it's all about you and what you want, and it doesn't take into account anyone else. Um, right. Sort of inherently. Is that really how you want to live your life so selfishly? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's very selfish, right? And, and, and if everybody goes around acting only in their own self-interest and only in the things that they want, I just don't think you can form a society that won't be oppressive inherently like it's going to happen it's going to it's going to descend into something terrible if not even full-blown like mad max fury road type shit um so yeah. it just the strongest sort of like yeah the yeah. strongest take power and, and suppress people that kind of so, thing. so often i think in in sorry this is just my own sort of soapbox moment but i, I always feel like these when we talk about these political ideas they're all held up as like ideals of like it's all this. It's all communism. It's all socialism. It's all capitalism. It's all fascism. It's all anarchy, right? Mm-hmm. And you're in a box. You're in one of these boxes. <laughs> and like life isn't that simple. Like every one of these, like, I mean, I don't know, debatably, but you know, all of these ideas have something to them. There's something there of value. And like it's all about cobbling together something that makes sense and um isn't too extreme and i feel like in any anytime you go too extreme into any one thing it, you can get in trouble and i know that it makes it sounds like i'm being a centrist in a way and i'm not trying to say that at all because i think that that itself is a position that has its own drawbacks and its own pitfalls um but it, it's like it's it's not all or nothing you know what i mean like it's 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 never all or nothing and and i don't know it just it's it's about finding somewhere on the spectrum in between all of these opposing ideas that is um, equitable and, and, and will work for whatever society you're trying to make it work for because everybody's different and every group of people is different. So I don't know. It just, it it feels like it's reductive to say that any one ideology is got all the answers. And to me, it's setting yourself up for failure. And that also creates so much division too, because people are so people become so, so, um, invested in one specific thing yeah and if you don't agree you're the enemy exactly so anyway uh, <laughs> uh but here we are we're talking about this the way this book per, you know proposes and one of the things that I actually think is really interesting though is like this is sort of an outline for what to do in a police state where the government is refusing to cede to the will of the majority right the will of the people I don't know why I bring that up, but it seems like this could become something that could become uh, a possible future scenario here. And um, it's interesting to look at this book as like the majority, the, the the majority of people do not have to be oppressed by a minority of people who are trying to rule by fiat, right? And and rule uh, just because they have the power and they are dominating you with that power there is strength in numbers there is strength in and and there are ways to oppose it and to dismantle it and that could become important to know about yeah possibly definitely man it's scary stuff scary stuff out there uh so anyway back into what's going on here um finch goes on a lsd trip (laughs) yeah yeah which is really something he takes four which like i don't know anything about lsd but I assume you take one of them tablets, you're probably going to have a trip. He takes four of them, and he, he's like, I don't know how much to take. Maybe I'll take all four. I don't know. And then he like goes, he he 
he loses himself like in this in this prison camp that that they had. Yeah. What a place to take it to like go to go to freaking a uh, concentration camp and take LSD like not a probably not a good idea. But but <laughs> we'll probably give you good perspective. Like well whether it's a good or bad trip. Yeah, it, and it does for him, I guess. Um yeah, he he really empathizes with V. Um he gets into his headspace and he real I think he like this is the first time where he's really confronted with the horrors of the government and what has mm-hmm. been going on. And I don't know. He he actually even has a part where he talks about how he misses people that are no longer present in society. Um, oh, th- there's a couple frames that I wanted to talk about here. Actually, the couple panels. Um, there's a panel where he's like saying that he misses like gay friends that he once had that he didn't mean to push away and and black friends and things like that. Yeah. And there's a panel that that starts where you're seeing all this diverse group of people, and the the exact same panel is the next panel, except all of them are like characters of of what like there was like a black stereotype like like offensive stereotype looking sort of uh in the vein of like what we saw in lovecraft country yeah recently like so i don't know so what that's showing what, like the way that per, that society the, the the current society that he lives in wants him to perceive these people or something yeah um and so it's just sort of like you said like yeah the stereotype of what not being around these people and what this society, what this, what this government has like forced into people's minds to otherize, to, you know, to make, to make people see different people as other. There, there's so much stuff like this that is so subtle and like, um, really would lend itself. Like I said, like you said, like to really studying these panels and like seeing what's being said here. So V also sort of positions himself to become a martyr for the cause, right? He allows Finch to kill him. Um, and then he he passes on the mantle to Evie, but in a way that lets her choose to take it up, right? Like she doesn't even realize that he's doing that. Um, and then I love the part where she is like thinking about unmasking him and we see several different faces mm-hmm. and they're all just kind of like some dudes, some, some guys. And then she sees her father at one point too, because she thinks right. like, oh, maybe it's, maybe it's my father or something. Um, but she chooses ultimately not to unmask him because it's like anything I do is going to reduce him to being a man. Whereas right now he's not a man. He's an idea and ideas are bulletproof, which he, he right. says to Finch. Um, and even though he's been killed, he lives on as an idea. Right. When Finch like V and Finch meet in the Victoria station and then uh, Finch like pulls his gun and fires a couple shots and V's like, you can't hurt me. I'm an idea. I'm, I'm bulletproof. And then that's when he stabs Finch. Um, and yeah, that, that idea comes back around. Another thing that I like is sort of in a meta way, it was, you know, you have to think like this, this comic was coming out for like a few years. And yeah. so like, if Alan Moore was to reveal anyone to be V, it would have been ultimately unfulfilling. So it's sort of yeah. a meta way of, of engaging with the reader as well and saying like, well, what did you want? Like, cause this is the better than anything you're going to get specifically. Yeah. You know, what's interesting in that, in that, in that essay at the end of the book, uh, I think it's called like behind the painted smile or behind the painted mask or something um he he says at one point that he's not he says uh the only thing i can tell you is that he's not evie's father yeah <laughs> it's interesting that he's that he came out and said that yeah because um, that's too too plain like that's that's too way too plain for alan moore like that's such a that's yeah. so typical of a story like this right right um you know obviously he becomes a father figure for her but he is not actually her father um and yeah, so just getting back on the idea of like V as, as an idea, as a concept, as a, as a symbol, that, that's what gives him the power he has, right? Like it's, that's what imbues, you know, so many things in comics and especially superhero stories, which this kind of is, um, 
you know, superheroes get imbued with some sort of power through some means, right? It's a scientific experiment, and that kind of happens here too a little bit. But you know, you know, Krypton for Superman, right? Like gives him the power of the sun or whatever. Like he's an alien. There's all these different like origin stories and stuff. But like at his heart, V is empowered by his ideas, and mm-hmm. he is empowered by the symbol that he represents of the people fighting back against fascism and against a police state and and this kind of stuff. And that seems unique to me, like the the idea of a superhero whose power is drawn from the power of his principles, um, and that that's that's cool stuff, and that's what I think v, you know V is. Definitely, I mean that's like uh, part of what makes this character so. I, I think someone who a character who stands so much by their by their beliefs that they're willing to die for it too reminds me of uh, Rorschach again. Like the you know might not be the right the right sort of like the right path but it's his path and he he believes in it so so fully that he'll he'll go to the end um feeling that way because ultimately you know rorschach dies in 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 a similar way in a way that's like you know standing by his his uh convictions and then um to the bitter end and then we have v here who and and i do think like 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 i said the the influence i think from the story is pretty pretty massive too because there's there's other like even if you think of like the dark knight like other versions of batman later versions of batman batman like at the end of the dark knight it's like he's a symbol right he's a symbol like um John, the film the dark knight the film the dark knight yeah. yeah so when at the at the end like he's he is a symbol he represents like um he's he's there for people to hate he's there for people to love but he ultimately is like he's going to you know stand for justice or whatever he's no longer a person at that point. right he's a symbol yeah in the same kind of way. And I think, you know, I'm not going to say that 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 influence was directly from Alan Moore in 1982 or whatever from V for Vendetta, but he could 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 have popularized (laughs) it in a way. I don't know. Could be, could be. Yeah, I like that. Um, It does fit V to sort of orchestrate his own demise in a way. Like it feels like it's all planned in a way that would almost be unbelievable if you haven't seen him pull off all these other plans that are unbelievable. You're like, okay, I guess this is the way he always wanted it to go down because he clearly chooses to let Finch shoot him. Like he could have killed him without drawing attention to himself. I think like, he had his back turned. Yeah, like like Finch yeah, had his so back turned. Finch and even he had points knives. it out later. Like I don't yeah. know why he let me shoot him because he could have he could have done something to stop it. Um, and it's because he wanted this moment to empower Evie to become him. Um, and and then and then she does, and and it, she appears as as um, V to talk to the people, and inspires an insurrection to sort of kick off. Um, but the focus is on her, right, and her and her journey, right, and and then um, she she picks up this dominant character, and it seems to me that she is going to begin training him in much the same way that V trained her, um, and and pass it on like person to person, um, which I thought was interesting. It was very like it was very personal, like really uh, influencing one person to take on the role. I don't know. Yeah, I had a question actually with all this. Do you, because throughout the story, Evie had been against killing. She was like, I'm not going to help you kill anymore. I'm not going to kill for you. And I wonder if this is V as the killer. Like he, so he's, you know, he's incited this anarchy. And we've talked about the two steps where it's like you destroy it all and then you build it up. And he's doing the same thing that everyone he's going against is doing, killing people, suppressing people. And I just wonder if this is like him dying is him passing on to the neck like the like he can't exist in that society where he's killed all these people he he yeah. can't be a part of the rebuilding because he's the destruction like when he dies does does evie taking on v 
does that mean that she will now sort of be the building back up and, and ensuring that, that the fascist regime doesn't build up before this new, you know, new society builds back up? Um, is, is she going to do it with less violence, with less killing? I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just I wonder if you felt there was something there, too. Maybe. I mean, I think there's room for her to, to behave differently, but the way she takes on the mask to me feels like she's following in his footsteps. Um, I do think you're touching on something that I, that I found really interesting, and it was the idea that, like, the people here of Britain, I don't think are shown to have definitely changed the way they think. And I think we're left with ambiguity of whether or not they will rebuild in a way that isn't just as bad. And won't uh, you know necessarily allow another fascist regime to take place? It's like he's trying to get people to wake up and think, but we don't necessarily see evidence that that is that is taking place. Um, so it feels more like ambiguous of like if you do this again, there needs to be another V to come and take it down again. Um, and that was kind of where I was thinking that she was positioning herself as like if if and it was almost like assuming that I will be needed again, like V will be needed again and I'll be here to, to, to take it down if it happens again. I don't know. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Cause it, it's I mean, like a it pessimistic way. way of looking at things, which I think Alan Moore in the essay was saying that he and David Lloyd are both very politically pessimistic. And right. so I think that's coming through here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that makes sense too. Cause like even, you know, you know, I think be optimistic enough to think that Britain can rebuild and create a better society, but also be pessimistic to know that like if they don't, V is here and we'll, you know, we'll take care of it again. Well, I think Hopefully. it also like it's, it's a good reminder that the reason that these these um, fascist regimes can get into places of power is that enough people support them. Now, it might be a minority, but there's still enough people out there who support it. It's that like, these movements are created by people, created by citizens for the most part of whatever country. And so it's a cautionary tale in that sense, too, of like, you can, like, just because you topple one doesn't mean you're not going to replace it with one, another that's just as bad or worse. And you right. have to be aware of what you're creating and, and what you're promoting. And I, I think the book V for Vendetta really doesn't want to, like, let Britain off the hook for what they've created themselves. It's like they were complicit in this. And they, they, the people here, you know, many of them actively participated in their own, you know, of course, often this is also the people who are left after this, like, cleansing, ethnic cleansing that happened that horribly murdered all these people, right? Like, so the ones left behind, it's like, uh, you're not necessarily forgiven for what you've done here. And um, I think that's why he didn't, like, uh, Alan Moore didn't seem to want to, like, forgive everybody and be like, ooh, yeah, kumbaya moment at the end here. It's like, no, the city's burning, like, there are, there's, you know, rampant rioting and looting going on and, like, stuff's chaos and, like, you know, evil shit's happening and it seems like, I don't know that the the result of this is necessarily a better world, but it is a, it has brought down something that was obviously bad. Well, it's like, they did something. Yeah. You know, they didn't they didn't sit by and do nothing. All right. So we're going to end here. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating review. Oh, and make sure to vote. Um, this is obviously a time where you're going to be hearing it from everybody. Um, and I just know that there are some people who are on the fence about whether or not to vote at all, um, because you might be feeling like it doesn't matter. Um, but I think it does matter. And I think this book is a, is sort of a cautionary tale about like, if things go bad enough, then something like this could become necessary. Um, and voting is one of the ways to ensure that um, 
may, or, or to try and combat it in a way that they can try and prevent it from getting this bad. Um, uh, yeah, and we, so, I mean, we just, yeah, and we just finished talking about apathy and like not doing anything yeah. and what that can do. And this is your yeah, way to do something. Don't be complicit, right? Yeah. Don't be complicit. Exactly. And, and not voting is a way of doing that, in my opinion. Okay, so, but yes, um, we were going to be back next week with the film, and I'm very excited. To, you know, it's, it's kind of continuing the coverage, but also to like dig into more of these ideas, look at the differences. Oh, uh, also, there was no big long. One of the things I remember about the movie was there's like this big long speech where every word started with the letter V. That doesn't happen in the comics, so I thought that was interesting. That's a movie edition. Certain things like that, I'm going to be on the lookout for, like, yeah. you know, changes like that. Um, so it'll be fascinating to get into. Looking forward to that. If you wanted to support the podcast another way, we are on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. We have many different tiers, but uh, the main one, I would say, is the $2 tier where we, we, you know, those people in that Patreon tier get our bonus episodes every month. Um, typically we do something that's sort of adaptation adjacent or something related to the podcast that we've already covered in some way, but there are some different, different sort of topics on there as well. We have a lot of fun with that. There's like close to 30 of them now. And um, another one will be coming out very soon. And yeah, another one's coming out very soon. (laughs) There's other tiers all the way up to, you know, 10, $25 and and they get you different things. So if you're interested, look into that. Also make sure to connect with us on social media. We're at ink to film on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we'd love to have you follow us and talk to us, talk with us, interact with us. Um, We like hearing from people who listen to the show. Absolutely. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. Happy Halloween, everybody. We will be back next week. Stay safe out there. Hopefully nothing too insane happens over the next two weeks, but just in case it does, uh, you know, think about V. Think about V for Vendetta. (laughs) Yeah. Stay safe, everyone. Yeah. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.